The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Morning. <laughs> Welcome back, David. Uh, David just recovered from COVID. Okay, as I said, May did half the sermon already in her prayer. So we continue the King's Speech series of sermon this morning uh, based on the words of uh, Jesus delivered and recorded in the Bible in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Chris introduced uh, the word antithesis last week, the so-called antithesis in which Jesus gives a new interpretation of Old Testament law, antithesis. Jesus gets us to look at the old thesis. You have heard that it was said. That's the old way. And goes on to say, But I say to you, He provided clarity of the true essence of God's commandments. The prohibition of murder should be enlarged to include anger. The prohibition of adultery should be enlarged to cover lustful thoughts. And the prohibition of false oaths enlarged to avoiding oaths altogether and making your yes always to mean yes. Now reading through the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount preparing this sermon reminded me how hard it is to engage and follow the absolute demands of Jesus. Jesus explained that he came to fulfill the commandments and he gave a deeper meaning to the commandments that the Jews perceived. The law is a guideline, a directive, or as a brother uh, reminded us during discussion over lunch last week these are commandments commandments for consecrated living as children of god we are saved by grace yes he saved us by his divine love i call this the perfect love that's the title for our message this morning the result of his saving grace is that we should respond in love and obedience. Our brother, the one who I had lunch with last week, wanted GCC preachers to emphasize how important it is for us to follow and obey these commands. We must call our people to pursue righteousness, he said. Don't take the easy way. Just because the perfect Jesus did it all for us, it does not mean we can just coast along. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus declared that perfection is the standard for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were hailed as a standard of righteousness. But Jesus said, 
their standard was not good enough because they only focused on external obedience to the law. God's standard, we heard last week, examines the heart. God desires true righteousness where obedience flows from a heart that is filled with faith because it was transformed by His love and grace through Jesus. This morning, we come to what has been called the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount. Verses that were the most admired and also most resented because this verse challenges us to love when we are wronged. How do we love when wronged? Let's go to the passage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48. You flip your Bible there, we will read together. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we all know the emotions that consume us, the thoughts that race through our minds when we have been wrong. I want you, I invite you to place yourself back in that moment, that occasion, when you have been wrong, unjustly, keep yourself there. And let's see how God helps us deal with that situation. When wronged, what thoughts spontaneously fills your mind? What words come out of your mouth? What actions are you likely to take? How do you respond? To your enemies. Several years ago, my company was involved in contractual disputes with a joint venture partner in the United States and a local partner or principal uh, in Malaysia. These very messy interlinked disputes ended up in the courts of Malaysia, Singapore, and the US. Very rich lawyers. 
the sums involved were substantial. Over a span of four years, I prepared and pleaded our case. It ended up with favorable judgments in all three countries for our company, vindicating our position and rectifying the wrongs inflicted on us. We were awarded financial compensations, a large part of which remains unpaid as of today. The sums were unpaid not because we lacked the means to collect. We had stipulated judgments which gave us the right to collect. No more resistance. Legally, we were able to do so. The reason we elected not to exercise our right to collect is influenced in large part by the grace and wisdom of the senior partner in my company. We had the means to force collection by forcing liquidation and shutting down the opposing companies. But it was grace shown by this godly Christian brother and elder of my previous church that he decided not to pull the trigger. He demonstrated his faith in God and pursued righteousness by obeying the words in our passage this morning. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48, Jesus explained that he expects his disciples when they are what he expects his disciples when they are wrong. We are called to show perfect love. We are called to seek the highest good and to follow him. So in verse 38, Jesus quoted Leviticus 24 regarding the legal recourse a victim had against someone who injured them. Leviticus 24, verse 19 to and 20, let me read. If anyone injures his brother, sorry, I'll read again. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. The law can also be found in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. They were issued to judges as guidelines to limit retribution in the process of rendering justice. The goal of the law was to protect the innocent and to ensure the punishment fits the crime. It was a law that is applied by those with rose in jurisprudence. This law of retaliation prohibited taking law into your own hands. It was not meant to condone personal revenge. Jesus confronted the scribes and the Pharisees because they wrongly applied this law to personal relationship and ended up justifying personal revenge. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we must remember to not seek our own revenge. When we are wrong, do not seek your own revenge. The scribes and the Pharisees should have known personal revenge was forbidden in their law. Leviticus chapter 19, earlier, 
in verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the God who hears. I am the God who sees. I am the God who knows. I am the Lord. Jesus, here in verse 39, elevated the standard when he said, do not resist the one who is evil. Resist means to oppose or to set oneself against someone or something. Evil in this word, in this verse, means a person who is evil. It does not refer to Satan or some concept of evil. It's the person, the one who is evil. What was Jesus actually teaching? Jesus was not commanding us to sit by while we or a loved one is threatened. Self-defense is permitted to protect ourselves. We can subdue the one who seeks to harm us until the authorities or help have arrived. So I want to be really clear on this. Yeah? The context of what Jesus is saying in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in these few verses, is not about something that requires the intervention of legal authorities. It is not about violent assault or abuse. What we're talking about here specifically refers to personal matters involving personal insults or injustice inflicted on us. In verse 39 to 42, Jesus provided four real-life scenarios to clarify this point. If an evil person slaps you on the right cheek, I, I want you to imagine being slapped on your right cheek. Turn the other cheek. In order to slap you on the right cheek, I need to do it with a backhand. Yeah? Not my forehand. In that culture, getting slapped on the right cheek was the highest form of insult and was punishable by a very heavy fine. That's the social legal law. To turn the other cheek, just to clarify, does not mean we forfeit the right to call out the injustice and also to seek an apology because Jesus himself did so when he was struck. Notice how he responded when he was struck by an officer of the high priest during his trial. You can turn to John chapter 18, verse 22 to 23. During his trial, when he said these things, verse 22, one of, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus did not turn the other cheek. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? 
So it's okay to say, hey, that's wrong. Call it out for what it is. Speak the truth in love. But what Jesus is talking about here is this. We, as God's people, must not exchange insult for insult. As may prayed earlier, when we are offended, when we've been wrong, it's easy to walk in the flesh. It is easy to want revenge. You insult me, I'm going to throw it right back at you. What Jesus is talking about here is he is actually commanding us to seek the highest, not higher, but the highest good. Don't be brought down to the level of your offender. If they go low, you go high. Michelle Obama? <laughs> but we're not referring to Michelle Obama. It's Jesus, yeah? Don't retaliate. Rise up as children of the Most High God and do what God would have you do because that's what He did for us through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8-9, to 9, a passage I preached last week in Dulos. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, a command to the church. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So in the first scenario, when we are insulted, we are called to seek the highest good. In the second scenario, it's in verse 40. Refer to verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, it is helpful to understand the context of the Roman law where, when we read this verse. The tunic is an undergarment. Tunic, something you wear next to your skin. The cloak and out. An outer garment is an item protected by law. The cloak, which is more expensive and was used by an individual, especially the poor, to keep them warm at night, like a blanket. But the interesting thing is that what Jesus is saying, the law actually prohibited keeping someone's cloak overnight. If you lost your cloak in a wager or had pledged it for a debt, you had the right to get it back. So it's like, if I give you my cloak for $100, you can have my cloak in the day as a pledge, but at night when I sleep, I have a right to take it back to keep warm. I'm poor, I need to borrow that money. So that's the context of, of it. But Jesus... Okay, to give context, this is... Read, read this in Exodus chapter 22. I will read the verse. You don't have to refer to it. Exodus 22, verse 26 to 27. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. So in this second scenario, Jesus declared for us that 
Christians should not imitate those who use the law or other means to take advantage of others, suing for the tunic. He said, if someone sues you for tunic, give them the cloak as well. Right? Instead of demanding your rights of fighting fire with fire, settle the matter peacefully and graciously. Give more than is asked of you with the hope of winning over the person, not the argument. In the legal dispute I shared earlier, my company was awarded the rights to force our US partner to pay or face the consequence of us foreclosing his company. We had the courts granted rights to do so. It's settled after much fees paid to lawyers. It will be good for us financially, but is that the highest good? It is not. We are called to imitate God. Remember how Jesus responded at his trial? He gave his life to redeem us. That was the highest good. In the third scenario, this is captured in verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In that day, a Roman soldier can compel a person into service against their wishes. That is the power they have as a governing authority. For instance, maybe a Roman soldier comes up to me and say, I have, and, and I have things with me, and I've already been working in the field all day, I could still be pressed into service to carry a load for this soldier and walk a Roman mile, which is, I understand, to be 1,000 paces against my will. So or imagine if I'm traveling and I walk past a military post and I just passed another military post two hours earlier and this new military post, the officer there says, come, stop where you're going right now. I'm going to give you this package. You need to take it back to that post two hours away. And I would be required to take that package back even though it would be an inconvenience to me. We have an example of this law being enforced. In the same book that we read, Matthew, chapter 27, this was recorded, this, was, this happened to Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene, we see this in verse 20, chapter 27, verse 32. Matthew 27, 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. This is an example of this rule when Simon was compelled to carry the cross behind Jesus. So that's Roman law. How does it apply for us today? Let me try to put it this way. Do not resist requests for help. Go the extra mile. When you are invited 
or called to serve in GCC, do not complain or try to find a justification to excuse yourself. I am encouraged that many of you serve week in, week out in different capacities to make sure we can function as a church. When you do that, you demonstrate obedience to this verse. Verse 41. I praise God that you're obedient to His commandment to love your church and to serve it. Now, whilst our brother I introduced earlier wants our preacher to be faithful, to preach and remind us to pursue righteousness, do we turn down opportunities to obey God's command in acts of service? Acts of service comes from a transformed heart. All preaching and reading of God's word that does not lead to a changed heart are wasted because there is no fruits in our life when we don't respond with a changed heart. If you are a covenant partner of GCC and yet not serving in any capacity, I encourage you to reflect and ask yourself, why am I disobedient? Yes, it is a command. When you don't do it, you're disobedient. So I'm holding all of us accountable. The idea here is that we need to have a to serve servant hearts. We need to have the heart of John the Baptist who says, I am unworthy to tie the straps on the sandals of Christ's feet. He must increase, I decrease. I want God to be glorified. It is not about my right. I serve the kingdom of God. You glorify Him and serve Him by living out your faith. It does not stay in the head. The head, what you understand, goes to the heart that changes how you live. No, I don't do ushering. Greeting people is just not me. The Bible does not teach that. Instead, it teaches it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be inconvenient having to come at 9.30 when service only starts at 10.45. It means I have to wake up an hour and a half earlier. It's against my will and my comfort. But Jesus is saying, go with it. Not just go with it. Do your best and go the extra mile. That's the third scenario. When you remember someone suing you for the tunic, give him the cloak. Go the extra mile. Then in verse 42, we have the fourth scenario. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The idea here is to give to those in need and be generous because God is generous. The idea behind this is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Let me read. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 to 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
little children, let us love in word. No, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Be generous. But we also know this. It does not mean that you and I should enable laziness or sinful choices. Discern what is best to meet that need just because someone is asking for money. It doesn't mean you should necessarily give them that, the money if, you're going, if they're going to go and spend it on things that are harmful or tear them down. The focus, the call is to love them and build them up. It's not an excuse for be people to be lazy, right? Because there's a separate clear teachings about that in Second Thessalonians. Paul records it in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 to 12, specifically about laziness. I want to belabor this because this is the most difficult verse I was struggled with when I was sharing with the preaching team on, uh, on Monday. Let, let me read. I want to clarify. This is, I find it difficult because verse 42 says, Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who borrows from you. It's so clear, right? You take it literally. You, you just have to obey that way. But the essence of it does not mean that we can condone or support laziness because teaching of laziness i want to clarify this and remove it from the context yeah second thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10 to 12 for even when we were with you we would give you this command if anyone is not willing to work let him not eat for we hear that some among you walk in idleness not busy at work but busy bodies now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So that deals very, very specifically with this idea that does it mean we have to give to people they don't have to work? No. So during the discussion with the preaching team on Monday, I shared with him that I found verse 42 most difficult. Reading, reading it literally is the most challenging one. And you have a merciful heart. You read that, so you just give without question. How can I explain this verse to you? It was helpful when others on the team pointed out that the key point here in verse 42 is to be, it's, it's just not to be about being generous, but it is about the need to love others. So we have four scenarios, four occasions where our sense of justice causes us quickly to draw lines. All of a sudden, we want revenge because we are thinking that that's the only way I'm going to get justice. We are also quick to draw lines to protect ourselves from being inconvenienced. We draw lines to not help those in need because we do not want to encourage them to be lazy. And at the same time, when we do that, we forget the commandment to love our neighbors. The message this morning is we must remember to seek the highest good 
It is not for us to seek revenge because God will settle all accounts. We are called to love God and love our neighbors. When wronged, we must rely on the Holy Spirit and give room for God to move on our behalf so that we are not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is a choice. We are able to make this choice because the Holy Spirit changes our heart. Paul echoes Christ's command in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus set the example for us. He was falsely accused. He was mocked, beaten, crucified. If anyone could have retaliated, Jesus could. But he didn't. He overcame evil with love, and so must we. The GCC preaching team is serving today. Parallel to this sermon, another brother is preaching in Dulos Presbyterian Church. Eken is there this week. I was there last week. And the week before, Chris. And the week before that, Andy. And the week before that, Massimo. We, we were all there preaching the First Peter series, which we did in this church last year, Hope in the Valley, if you remember. And I want to bring your attention back to First Peter chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. That was Chris's sermon the week before last. First Peter chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it? You endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When you're going through it, when you are feel you are going through injustice, your flesh in us wants to retaliate and draw lines. But the call is for us to submit ourselves to God. Respond in obedience to rise up, seek the highest good, and know that as a child of God, God is concerned about what you are going through. You are not going through this alone. He is right there 
with you, sanctifying and polishing the rough edges of your heart. He sees, he hears, and he knows he's going to make it right for his own sake. Don't make matters worse by taking revenge, by taking matters in your own hands. Follow him. He is your Lord. So in verse 38 to 42, Jesus says that even though we may have a right to exercise our rights as Christians, we must speak, we must seek the highest good. Let love guide your actions. When you love, God is glorified. Next, we move on to verse 43 to 48. Jesus sets the bar even higher when he commanded Christians to love your enemies. Okay, I may be able to turn the other cheek, but why do I need to love them? The scribes and the Pharisees taught Israel, taught the idea that Israel shall love those who were near and dear to them. Love your neighbors. I mentioned this verse earlier at the start of the, uh, of the message, uh, but let us refresh and reread Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, the scribes and the Pharisees, they taught that you're supposed to love your neighbors. That is a command. Simple. But they did not stop there. The scribes and the Pharisees also taught Israel to hate their enemies and that God was using them to judge their enemies. It was justification. The more I hate them, the more God is going to judge them. But Jesus, as we have seen in the passage so far, is correcting this false teaching and taught, the God, and taught God's people that taught God's people that they backtrack. But Jesus is correcting this false teaching and teaching that God's people must love their enemies and pray for their prosecutors so they might be sons of their Father in heaven. Verse 43, let's read it. Verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard, it's, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. That's the thesis. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The command, this command, when obeyed, sanctifies us. The object of this command is so that you those who obey may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. There is a reason for the command. You might be wondering, why would we want to do such a thing? They are my enemies. But God brings it back 
right back on us when we realize that God loved us when we were His enemies. I pray that we are humbled by this realization. If you pay attention to what seems obscure in verse 45, you read that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus was declaring that our Father is a God of grace and mercy. He is kind to those who do not deserve His kindness and love. You and I are all recipients of that love and kindness. For while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10 spells this truth. I'm not going to go to Romans 5, but I want to leave you with this question. Why does God show kindness towards his enemies? He told us why. Because he loves them and he wants them to repent of their sin. This is Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is kind, and his goal in bringing out that kindness is to bring people back into relationship with him. It is easy only to love those who love you. Even the tax collectors do that. Greet only your brothers. Everyone does that. But you are my children. Follow me. So if we are to follow God's example as God's children, then we must be perfect as God is perfect. So, but the idea of perfect here in verse 48, what actually does that mean? So when we come to verse 48, it's like the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the crescendo of this entire chapter. Jesus declaring that God is the standard, not man. If we are God's children, then we must think, we must speak and act as God would want us to think, act and speak. The word perfect does not mean sinless perfection. On this side of heaven, none of us will be perfect. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to live a holy life by faith. What this communicates here is that we should be growing in maturity or to be, in other words, complete, perfect complete in Christ. Jesus expanded the law to explain what is expected in our heart. Not our acts, but our responses that come from our heart. A new heart, not the heart of stone, but a new heart of flesh. Always seeking the highest good always seeking to glorify our, fa our Heavenly Father. Jesus is describing an authentic relationship with God through Him so that a person's heart is changed. Instead of hating our enemies, 
we can actually love them because God loved us when we were his enemies. Instead of praying about our enemies, we are called to pray for them. God who created us knows that when we actually pray for someone and not about someone, the Holy Spirit does something in our heart. He softens our heart and all of a sudden, we understand God's heart for them, the one we are praying for. Instead of being like Jonah who wanted the Ninevites destroyed, even though they didn't know their right hand from their left hand. They were ignorant. All of a sudden, we can have compassion and like Jesus on the cross where he cried out in pain, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. He changes our heart. We can rise above the worldly standard which tells us to love only those who love us and greet only those who are worthy of our greeting. But I believe as Christians, we are called to love the same way God perfectly loved us. And this means our hearts also need to be healed from the hurts that we have suffered so that we stop hurting others. God healed Joseph's heart. He did not forget all the pain in his father's household. He did not forget the afflictions by his brothers on him. But when he remembered, he had no bitterness in his heart. Instead, God turned Joseph's affliction into a life of fruitfulness. In the days of the famine, that fruitfulness allowed him to bless his brothers and his family. We also live in the land of our own afflictions. We are not where we want to be yet. But even here today, because God can heal our hearts, we can be fruitful for His glory. So in conclusion, three minutes, let me repeat the two key points of our message. First one, even though we may have the right to exercise our rights as Christians, we are called to seek the highest good. Let love guide your actions. When you love, God is glorified. And the second point, that God changes our heart. We can rise above the worldly standard which tells us to love only those who love us and greet only those who are worthy of our greeting. But as Christians, we are called to love our enemies the same way God perfectly loved us. So do not be frustrated when you find yourself failing to obey God's command. But do not be complacent to not obey. As God continues His work in your heart, when you fail, run back to Him for forgiveness. Rest in the complete work of Jesus. He knows you. He wants you to grow and to mature 
and to be perfect. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount next time, listen to the subtext of what Jesus is actually saying. My children, you have heard it said, and now I say to you, I love you perfectly, and I want you to be perfect. If you love me and want to glorify your Father who is perfect, obey my commandments, let me heal you and transform your heart to love perfectly. All in all, as the song said, Christ is our all in all. Let God heal your heart. Obey Him out of your love for Him. When you do this, we point people to Jesus, the one who loved us perfectly. Our world needs the perfect Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word tells us that we love because you first loved us. When we were your enemies, you loved us and made us your very own. Your amazing love shows us the perfect love you command us to obey. Father, I acknowledge that even right now, there are those who are here who are hurting. And because they are hurting, they hurt others. They walk in the flesh. They seek revenge when hurt. They are apathetic to the needs of others and do not care to build others up. Lord, we want it to be a new day. It's time for a change. Lord, we need you. We need you to do that deep healing work in our hearts that only you can do. We want to love perfectly like you do. We ask in the name of Jesus that you will heal every broken heart. You will minister to every hurting life and instead of seeing our enemies with hatred in our hearts, we could actually love them. This is your perfect love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.